Welcome to Birkbeck Voices, the monthly podcast about the latest news and research from Birkbeck, University of London. I'm Guy Collander. In this episode, we focus on the life of Steve Biko, an anti-apartheid activist in South Africa in the 1960s and 1970s. Our interviewee, Dr Derek Hook of Birkbeck's Department of Psychosocial Studies, has just written a biography about the influential student leader, and he is here to tell us about his book. Dr. Hook, thank you for joining us in the studio. Thank you, Guy. It's lovely to be here. Um, It's a very exciting opportunity to talk about the book. Why did you decide to write about Steve Biko? The first real reason that I started writing about him was because I thought that there was a kind of, you could say, vernacular psychology here, which seemed very important. Um, And certainly now, in terms of uh, the discipline of psychosocial studies, where we're very aware of um, conjunctions, articulations of psychology and power, um, his work seemed to be very important to look at. So I started looking at it in those terms, more with a, a view to how it may be a way of rethinking psychology, to think about um, a psychology of resistance in South Africa against apartheid. And then it was only a little while later when um, I started thinking about a, a biographical project. Um, and of course, even there, there were some questions because the publishers knew me and they knew that I was interested in Biko, so they suggested the project. Um, and initially I said no, just because there are uh, issues in a white South African like myself writing a, a book about Biko. And Steve Biko began studying medicine at the University of Natal, but his political activities soon took over. And then in 1968, he created the South African Students' Organisation and he became the leader of the Black Consciousness Movement. What was the impact of his activities? Certainly now, uh, thinking back, it, it seems very difficult to, to not see the massive presence of, of, of Nelson Mandela. But of course, there was a time in the 70s when Mandela and many of his colleagues had already been in, in prison in Robben Island for you know, going on a decade. And um, the... The oppressive regime of the apartheid government had pretty much squashed and destroyed um, the Pan-African Congress, uh, the African National Congress, and most forms of resistance. So what made Steve Biko and black consciousness so fascinating was it was a movement which was much indebted to black consciousness in the United States, but it was developed in a university setting. And there were young guys, young intellectuals, young activists, and part of their... um, particular focus was to try and form a kind of movement to take up the slack because there was this gaping gulf where the ANC had been, totally outlawed. So they they needed to to pump some young blood, some young enthusiasm into this gap. And furthermore, black consciousness at the time had to articulate itself more, not as an overtly political organization, because to do so would have meant that they would be banned straight away. And you see echoes of this even today. So, for example, in the Steve Biko Foundation, they often don't want to highlight Biko as a political thinker. They want to see him as a a cultural figure. So the question, what was the the impact of his activities, was multifaceted. In a way, he wanted to produce... um, In a way, a nice way of answering your question is it it was not simply a series of political outcomes, but it was a, a change of consciousness hence the term black consciousness. It was um, a sense of pride, a sense of solidarity amongst all of those South Africans who were categorized as as non-white. And what that meant then was it would have a whole series of different aligned projects. So there was a publishing project, there was um, a a health clinic, uh, there were a whole series of community initiatives 
all of which were designed to make the oppressed black population say or believe, we can do this. We don't need to rely on um, the oppressors to help us because they're not really doing that at any rate. But then the repression extended beyond the ANC to include black consciousness movement. And then in 1977, age 30, Biko was arrested, tortured and died in police custody. Yes. Uh, 10,000 people were at his funeral. Is it right to say that in death, as in life, Biko inspired anti-apartheid campaigners? Yes. Um, I mean, in some ways, you know, you had these semi-prophetic notes in some of his last writings uh, where he says things like, and I'll probably get the quote slightly wrong, he says, your death can be a, a politicizing thing. Um, and one of the, the, the moving, most moving elements for me, reading back at some of the material, is I think what black consciousness had and what maybe is so difficult for us to imagine in a situation like this was it, it was a kind of politics and culture of, of courage. And what that meant was it, it was it not just a kind of politics of conviction. It was a kind of um, political and cultural movement whereby Biko realized there would be a, a very large price to pay for it. And that price was very possibly going to be his own life. So m- some of the biographies of him speculate about that. And some people think that he did know or that it was a serious possibility that he would die. I think that's that's probably true. Um, and I, I think he was also well aware of how that may be a hugely powerful thing. And of course, you know, you get all these guessing games. Would he have been as important, as well-remembered if he hadn't been martyred? But um, whether that is not the case, his death was a hugely uh, important thing and a massively important blow against um, the apartheid government. So just in, you know... Uh, uh, if you ask colleagues, friends who, who in Britain who know something about South Africa and, and um, the liberation struggle, that may have been one of the things they will have remembered. Because, you know, there was the Attenborough movie which followed um, a few years afterwards, Cry Freedom. And, um, you know, on the other hand, there's people who say, wow, this is a sentimentalizing of the Biko story. And it actually becomes more the story of Donald Woods, who was the key white journalist who, who helped... Um, get photographs of him, uh, his dead body out, and so on and so forth. But nonetheless, I think certainly with the Biko family, they felt that those treatments, those films, you know, there's the Peter Gabriel song, there's all of these things, there's a Simple Minds version of that same song, which really did put a name and face to the liberation struggle in a very powerful way. I mean, you know, maybe even starting to um, to rival the, the importance of Mandela as the key signifier of resistance. And your book is part of the Voices of Liberation series, which features original speeches as well as biographical information. What works by Biko have most impressed you going back through the archives? Part of what's useful about his argument is that he has this very strong critique of white liberalism, white South African liberalism, which he says is a form of a pretended political involvement whereby whites play the game of trying to score points to be seen to be critical of apartheid whilst all the time they also are aware that they, they still enjoy its privileges. Um, and so one of the things I did find in the archive, which isn't in the book, is a long um, uh, interview with a woman called Gail Gerhardt, who was an American researcher at the time. And Biko gives this anecdote of how he was at a student conference, and he noticed the same pattern happening again and again. There would be some whites and blacks that get together, they would seem to be working together, and then slowly but surely you would realize that it's actually the whites just making all the decisions. So he suggested 
they had a problem. He suggested that um, they take a certain route of action. The problem was in um, group areas and all of these things in apartheid, black students and white students couldn't sleep in the, s the same residences. And they were obliged, the black students, to relocate from the university in the course of the conference, only coming back in the daytime. So Biko said, no, we take a stand. The white students said, oh, no, it's going to be too dangerous. The police will come. We don't want to take a stand. Can't you just go somewhere else for the night? He said, no, we, we're going to take a stand. And he said, we're going to take a stand. The police will come. And what we want you white students to do is lie in front of the police cars. And just reading this, you know, years later, you realize both how he must have um, shocked these white students unbelievably. And, and in a way, well, it shouldn't be funny, but it, it's, you can see there's a, there's a, a brilliant... Um, political mind happening there because in that very gesture he was demonstrating that they weren't going to be able, be willing to go along with that so yeah that, that was a wonderfully illuminating moment I think and it both showed that he had um, a good sense of getting the message across and, 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 and being involved in some kind of demonstrative movement which would make blacks and whites realize what was going on because part of his problem was even black allies were saying, no, but, you know, these are white students, they want to help us or whatever. And I think he needed to try and make the point in, in quite an emphatic way, which he did. And then the black consciousness movement as well, consciously all black, was, yes. wasn't a, yes. a, a, a coalition of white and black. Yes, yes. I mean, that's, that's also a point worth mentioning, um, because in a way, that's part, of, I think, also of what has been most attractive about uh, Biko to me, is that there's a strong radicalism to what he's saying. He's saying at the time of apartheid, one has to be highly suspicious of um, these kind of sentimental joinings of hands of white and black against apartheid. Now, of course, the ANC before that had, had been very willing to do just that. And, of course, you know, some famous icon heroes at the time were white. Um, and Biko said... No, unfortunately, now's not the time because there's this subtle and sometimes not so subtle level of condescension and uh, paternalism that happens. And he makes the argument, he says, given the way everything is structured, it's not surprising that white students are better educated and more articulate. And indeed, half the debates and discussions happen in English. So it, we've got to be wary of mounting a political struggle or uh, some kind of liberation struggle, which in its internal workings, starts to, again, reflect some kind of white superiority. So, you know, some people take a harsh view on that. And, of course, it absolutely antagonized white liberalism and white liberals who didn't want to hear about that. But that was the stance he took. Um, and I think it was important, probably right at the time. The question, of course, in post-apartheid South Africa, people want to ask, is that still a viable kind of politics? Or is that now seen to be exclusionary? And how has the book been received in South Africa? Um, the book has only just um, come out, I mean, within the last two weeks. So we're still getting a sense of that. I don't know. Um, earlier on, I alluded to the fact that there, there may be an issue of sorts. And that is that um, I'm a white um, South African, you know, grew up in apartheid. And so writing a book on Biko is a, is a questionable thing to do. Biko himself has a number of critiques where he says, oh, you know, it's always the whites who want to speak for blacks, whites who want to represent blacks. And so I think what has started to happen in South Africa is, is an awareness of this. And um, there's some very um, <clears throat> strong criticisms that I've seen in, in many South African newspapers when you get a white intellectual who starts using a black consciousness critique. Because many critics will say, 
what are you doing? You are again doing what Biko warned of, speaking for blacks, uh, representing what you think are the ends of black consciousness. You don't understand, even in the very act of doing it, you're already being patronizing, speaking for blacks once again. So I had a bit of a to and fro with the publisher when I said, look, it's lovely. I would love to do it. I'm interested in the material. I've read all the work I can get my hands on. Um, but I actually don't think it's for me for, the, for these reasons. They were a little bit persistent. And then eventually I said, okay, I will do it. Um, and I think one of the things that I've had to learn in the course of, of the book is that there's a difference between trying to do some historical work on Steve Biko and the project of implicitly speaking for him. And of course, maybe you say that's a very fine line. And I, you know, I don't know for sure whether I haven't slipped a little bit into representing Biko rather than trying to speak of what I can see of that historical time and what I can read and find out about him. So there's very interesting, I think, uh, you could say, not just the politics of representation, but almost the kind of ethical dimension of how one writes biographically about someone who criticizes me. I mean, you could say that Biko really foresees the, this project and, and is critical of it. So in that respect, it has been a, a learning process. But I think for me, I've got to the point when I've also made the discovery of I Often it is the case that well-intentioned white intellectuals in South Africa and elsewhere want to do these kinds of projects, almost within the implicit sense that I can sort of resuscitate myself, I can prove my non-racism by doing this thing. And somewhere along the, in the course of the project, I, I suppose I came to terms with the fact that I'm this middle-class white guy, and that's actually what I am. I, I, and I don't, so in that respect, I'm not a kind of black consciousness guy, not, just, not in the obvious sense of not being black, but actually, and, and I think this is something I learned from him, don't, don't fall into the liberal trap or the trap that liberals fall into, which is that of thinking I'm a good guy and that I'm actually uh, extending the interests of the oppressed when you're not. And so that, that's part of the journey. And I suppose now I wait with slightly bated breath for some of the, the critiques, um, no doubt the angry responses, some of which will, I suppose, be justified. But I would like to think and hope that there will be some productive debate that will come out of it. And I like to think that it's not always the case that um, two things, that white intellectuals, whatever, um, will, in writing about Biko, implicitly speak for him. And furthermore, I do also hope that it doesn't become some weird kind of taboo area where to be white means you just have to sort of not engage with this intellectually. So would you say it's more of a sort of intellectual exercise rather than a political one? Um, yes, I, th I think maybe that, yeah, I think that's probably right. In fact, I would also kind of say it's more of an intellectual project than a political project, and perhaps it's also more of a historical project um, and a challenge to think about how to write about a life. Because, uh, I mean, I'm sure lots of um, academics also have this. It's always something I've been curious on learning how to do, but, you know, if, if you tend to write theoretical research papers or you do empirical research, you don't write a biography. And so I suppose it's been a learning experience in, in that respect. But yes, I think it's more of an um, intellectual and historical project than a political one. Dr. Derek Hook, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and research about Steve Biko. And that brings us to the end of this podcast. For more information about Birkbeck's news, events and courses, please visit www.bbk.com. Thank you.